All right, welcome this morning. We are in Acts chapter 13 this morning. Just wanted to let you know this morning I found myself being just getting a little nervous and I'm like, it's not you all that are making me nervous. I mean, you're all just who y'all, right? But I was at work the other evening, uh, working a little late in a one of our nurses at work came over and she saw me um, working. She asked me what I was doing. I said, well, I'm working on the sermon. I got the sermon this Sunday. And, and then she said, well, can I see it? Are you online? I said, yeah, we're online. We're online, right? And then I got to thinking about that. She might be watching me right now and I don't really know her and that kind of makes me nervous. And I got to start thinking, you know, like, like President Trump could be watching me. Couldn't he? Theoretically speaking, right? I don't know. Should that make me nervous? I don't know. Then I started thinking, oh, the Lord is watching me. And that just kind of put it all back into this, right? This is about the Lord. This is about his word this morning. And uh, I just want to offer up a prayer before I begin. Just ask the Holy Spirit to uh, be here for this teaching. Father, in Jesus' name, I just thank you for the gathering of your people. I thank you for your word, which is life unto us, Father. As we break bread this morning in your word, may it become a light in life. May we become nourished and encouraged, and may we be sent out in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, so we are in Acts chapter 13. And up until this point, we've had kind of this story, you know, Acts starts out with the ascension of Christ, and then it moves on into the day of Pentecost, and all of these wonderful stories that we've been hearing from the book of Acts up to this point. Um, Peter, you know, heals the, blind, the, the lame man. And then there's a story about Peter and John getting in trouble, being in jail and being released. And there's uh, kind of the sobering story about Ananias and Sapphira and, and what happened there when you lie to the Holy Spirit. Um, there's the stoning of Stephen that we've, that we've uh, read about and, and what has been taught about. And then the persecution in chapter 8 of, of, verse of, of Acts, in the book of Acts, is the persecution that's going on. And then the church is scattered at that point in time. And it's soon after, after that, then we're introduced to um, Stephen, the first martyr in the church, and also introduced to Paul, uh, Saul, who later on becomes the Apostle Paul. And then here in the last couple of chapters, it's been about Peter's vision with Cornelius and the gospel being uh, opened up to Jews and Gentiles that, that the Lord sees no difference in that, in, in those groupings. And the Gentiles are ushered in um, into the Jewish realm, so, you, so, so to speak. And, uh, and then last week we have uh, James beheading and, and Peter uh, being released and escaping from jail once again. So these first 12 chapters center on kind of the, the early church in Jerusalem. But there's a shift here now in chapter 13 that's going to lead us through the rest of the, what, another 14 chapters in the book of Acts. 
Um, the first 13 chapters center around kind of Jerusalem, the disciples there, Peter and John, um, those early apostles who were with Christ are kind of front and center and are in the limelight. But we see this shift in focus now. It shifts from kind of the mother church in Jerusalem to the church in Antioch, which is about 200 miles north of Jerusalem. Because remember, you know, when the church was being persecuted back in chapter 8, there was this dispersion going on. And a number of the churches in, in I mean, I'm sorry, a number of the people in Jerusalem kind of went up because there was a Jewish enclave up in, in Antioch. Like I said, about 200 miles north. So they went up there to, to escape the persecution. And in the meantime, this church was growing and this church was moving and things were going on. And so we have this shift in the book of Acts from kind of mother church Jerusalem to the church in Antioch, which is kind of more of a mission type of church and outreach. There's a shift also in Acts 13 from, as I said, from the apostles, the original apostles, to now the apostle Paul. So he's still known as Saul at the beginning of this chapter, but they change it. his name is changed to Paul throughout this chapter here. And from here on, he's known as the apostle Paul. In fact, every other chapter now is all about Paul's life. Some scholars say it's really now the Acts according to Paul from this point forward in, in Acts chapter 13. And it's also a shift. There's a difference now in how the gospel of Jesus Christ is being spread. Before, the, the gospel was being spread kind of by this spontaneous, like, the Lord showed up, he did this wonderful thing, and so people are just kind of spontaneously going out and saying, hey, look what Jesus did here, and look what Jesus did there. And there's a persecution going on, so we're getting away from persecution as they run away from persecution and get into safer areas. Then, of course, they're taking the gospel with them. And so the spreading of the gospel is just kind of happening spontaneously. But we see a shift here in the church in Antioch. There's a shift where the, mission, where the spreading of the gospel becomes very intentional. All of a sudden, there's some thought, there's some planning, there's some deliberation about how we get the gospel of Jesus Christ out. And that's occurring here. And there's that shift, there's that context here in chapter 13. And uh, last of all, I want to point out in Acts chapter 13, is that there's a very distinct shift in the fact, in the sense that the Apostle Paul now comes into his own, that I've already, just like I've already alluded to. Um, it's been, you know, Saul was saved back in, what, chapter 9. We're now in 13. Well, that was 14 years ago, okay? So there was, a, there was this, things are happening in a chronological order, but there's this time gap. Sometimes I think we read this and we think, well, this happened this week or this month and then the next month and the next month. Well, no, 14 years had passed between chapter 8 or 9, um, what was that, chapter 9, when Saul is knocked off his donkey, right, and gets knocked on his hind end and becomes saved to this point now here at the beginning of chapter 13. In the meantime, you know, after he was saved, he was there in Damascus, 
left and went into the desert of Arabia for three years and was taught by Christ himself. I mean, think about that for a second. The Apostle Paul leaves Damascus, goes into Arabia for three, instead of going to Jerusalem and saying, hey Peter, hey Paul, tell me about this Jesus. He knocked me on my hind end. I was blind for a few days and then those scales came off of me and now I want to sit down and I want you to spend the next three years teaching me about the three years that Jesus taught you and trained you and discipled you. No. The Lord had him go out into the desert and I don't know, what was that like? I mean, did Jesus show up in his glorified body? Was it just a communion of the Spirit? We don't know. We just simply don't know. What we do know is that however that communion was between Paul and Jesus in the desert for those three years that Paul was there, is that Paul was learning about you know, he had already been trained in the Old Testament laws, right? And what he was taught there by Jesus was, is how Jesus was showing him how the Old Testament was about Jesus. Where he was then able to, in his writings, put together the Old Testament with this new church, with this new thing that God was doing. So Paul was in, this, in the desert for the three years, being taught, and then he went to Jerusalem, and there he confirmed with the disciples that what he was taught by Jesus in the desert was truly real and authentic, and they compared notes, and it's like, yeah, this is the same teaching. This is the same message. This is the same salvation. This is the same gospel. And then he somehow kind of lands up in, in Antioch and kind of uses Antioch as a base for a number of years, so 14 years now have gone by before we see now Paul kind of emerging and coming unto his own as a disciple and as an apostle. Um, so all of this is going on as we come into chapter 13 in verse 1. Verse 1 says, In the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So here we're talking about this early church situation. And I'm just simply going to take some time here. In fact, Joey had asked me earlier this week, I guess based on his shoulder thing, like, hey Mark, can you grab chapter 13 this week? I'm like, sure. I'll grab chapter 13 this week. And then I opened up chapter 13 and I saw there's 52 verses in chapter 13. When I teach or preach, I average about 10 minutes per verse. All right, so 52 times 10 is 520 minutes. Are you ready? So I was like, all right. 520 minutes is what, about seven or eight hours? Anyhow, we're not going to do that. All right, so then I was like, well, about half of them, well, there's not really a natural break there. After verse 13, there's kind of a natural break, you know, and so I was going to shoot for 13, and then I started out and studying this, and then I got down to, by Friday evening, 
three verses. So we got three verses this morning. Sorry, Joey, if I let you down on that one. Um, And Mark never taught again at MCF. (laughs) So I want to start out. The church at Antioch. The church, ecclesia in the Greek, called out once. The church is a group of people Okay, so people called out of their homes to a gathering of people for a purpose. In fact, in the Greek mindset, ekklesia describes simply a gathering. It was actually a legal term in the Greek culture back at that time. They hadn't kind of Christianized the word church. They hadn't made it kind of this religious thing. It was any gathering people from coming out of their homes, going into the community and gathering or assembling there were known as a church, ecclesia. That's what they used to describe it. And the reason that I'm picking on that just a little bit this morning, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, because I want to say in its original context, the church described this gathering and the church had nothing to do with the building that they met in. A church had nothing to do with that. I mean, stop and think about it. If I asked you to close your eyes and say, picture a church, right? What do you do? You, you think of, you know, out in Vermont there in the, the hills where there's like all these colored leaves around in the hill, and there's this little white church with the steeple up, you know. It's the church. Or you maybe think of, you know, some ornate church with, you know, gothic structures. You know, just uh, all of these church buildings. That's what we've kind of done with it. The phrase going to church is really a misnomer, right? You're not going. You are the church. Rather, we should say, I'm the church going out to a place where I'm meeting the rest of the church. And oh, by the way, we meet in Mechanicsburg there at the corner of Shy and Allison. Why am I pulling this out? Why am I even spending any time on this? I think just simply because man and our tendencies, we have a way of kind of emphasizing things that Scripture itself doesn't emphasize. Where we start making buildings and look at our church, look at what we do. Look at our coffee bar. Look at what this is going on here. And look how nice this is. And blah, nah, 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 nah. And we, kind of, we can water down the original intent. The intent is, is that when we think of church, you should be thinking of the people right around you. So like this morning, when we gathered together and came here to worship, And I don't know if it's just me, but there's something about the gathering together of a people, of a group, for the purpose of worshiping the Lord that ushers in the Spirit in a way that is just simply different. Now, I don't understand that all doctrinally, maybe even theologically. All I know is this morning, the last song we were on, about halfway through, I just kind of felt something that I hadn't been feeling, right? Now, was the Spirit here all along? Maybe you had felt it before I felt it there at the last song. I don't know. I can't describe all of that. But my point is, that's what the church is about. And in the New Testament, here we see a de-emphasis on any sort of building and identity in kind of this place where people go. 
we have no clue. You know, in the Old Testament, it was kind of big, the temple, the tabernacle, you know, all of that. But in the New Testament church here, there's a strong de-emphasis on an actual building structure itself. It's just, it's just not there. So in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And I'm going to just stop there for just a moment. Prophets and teachers. These roles can contain an authority that I think at times maybe we don't quite understand. Think about this. The New Testament had not yet been written. We're still 50 years away from what we call now today the closed canon. All right? Where the Bible was now written and we have it in written form. So when Paul was preaching, you might say he was writing the word. There's a, there was an authority and an anointing poured out upon Paul and I believe even that early church that, that the culture and the society of that time would have given them. And I think it's why it, it points out here in this, there were prophets there. There were people still speaking the word of the Lord. Okay, when we talk about hearing the word of the Lord, in today's context, it's always put up against this word, right? At that time, they didn't have that contrast, that comparison. And so we find that in this original church here at Antioch, that they had a strong prophetic and teaching authority that they were establishing. Okay, now the leaders in the church, Barnabas. Barnabas is known as the son of encouragement. If you remember Barnabas, he was involved in the church earlier. He was one of those who did so when he sold his piece of land. He told them exactly how much he got for that piece of land and he gave that money to the church. He didn't lie like Ananias and Sapphira did. Um, he obviously came to accept Jesus as Messiah. He would have grown up in a religious Jewish household. In chapter 11, in fact, there's... Uh, in fact, I'm just going to quickly... Turn to it, and you don't need to turn, but um, news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So there we get a picture of who the type of person that was hanging out with the Apostle Paul. And this is Barnabas. Uh, some people, when they hang out with you, you just, you just, yes, I like them. Not because they're kissing your hind end. You like them because they're godly and they're solid and they're full of the character of Christ. And they're, they may even say some hard truths to you, but you still feel encouraged when all is said and done. And then there was a Simeon called Niger. Niger means black. Um, so I, I guess they just get darker skin color and they just call them black. I, I don't know, I'm just reporting this, not really politically correct sounding, but what's great about this is he came from, obviously came from the African region, and along with Lucius of Cyrene, would have also been from that region. And so what we see here in this original leadership team is a diversity Okay, there's, 
there's this sense that God's calling out this person from here and from here and from here. Um, Mannion. This guy's interesting as part of, you know, speaking of diversity and kind of some uniqueness, Mannion was the foster brother to Herod Antipas. Okay, they would have grown in up in under kind of this, um, you know, there was Herod Tetrarch, the father, and, and so he was a foster brother to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the one who was involved in, you know, John the Baptist's head getting lopped off, right? He was ruthless. Herod presided over Christ, you know, when Christ was going through the crucifixion trial. And so here's his foster brother who grew up in this same household is now a leader in the church. What's interesting as I was just kind of looking through this, um, Herod, so Mannion's foster, you know, they were, he was a foster brother to Herod, King Herod. Herod's chief of staff, you might say, okay, the chief of the stewards, an influential person at that time in, in his court. Um, he had a wife named Joanna, Joanna was one of the women who was at the foot of the cross when Christ died. And what stands out to me is, is that while Christ was there before Herod, and in essence submitting himself to the earthly process, guess what was going on? There were people in that very household who out the back door were being influenced following Christ even identifying themselves maybe at the risk of their own lives because of Christ. Isn't that something? And so here we see this person who could have gone on to maybe some sort of influence in culture and been a somebody culturally is now serving in this, first, in, in this church here at Antioch. And then, of course, there's Saul. And Saul himself was very diversified. And someone has said, I like this thing. He was a Roman by birth. Okay, so he's legally Roman. He is a Greek by culture. In other words, he was, that's a society he was a student and, and was aware of. He was a Jew by religious identity. And he was a Christian by calling. And so even within Paul, there's this kind of complex diversity, all these things kind of merging together. And, and God, how we see how God uses all of these diversities and brings them together to form the leadership in the local church. And so the second, in, in verse 2a, Acts 13, 2a, this is the line that I'm going to be spending a little bit of time on this morning. While they were worshiping unto the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... Now, you know, we've been in the book of Acts now for quite, what, back, going back to August or so. And so I've been reading that in my own personal quiet time in the mornings. And when I got to this chapter and I read this, this line grabbed me. This was a couple, I don't know, two or three weeks ago now. This line here grabbed me. While they were worshiping unto the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... Let me break that down. First of all, I want to clarify. I've taken some appropriate liberty in inserting the word unto the Lord. The Greek rendering is as we're ministering, now they to the Lord. Now the NIV says they were worshiping the Lord. But to, to clarify that, 
is as they were ministering now, they to the Lord. It's the difference between saying, I'm worshiping the Lord or I'm ministering unto the Lord. Hang in there with me just a second. I'll explain that. Number one, that statement is a, this statement contains within it a demonstration of a proper heart attitude. I've been coming to this church for 23 years. For 15 of those years, I served either on staff or as an elder here. Now, is it because you all are such great and wonderful people that I'm here? Is it because I have this unhealthy enmeshed connection with you all and I just can't separate myself from you? No. It's not about that. I love you guys, and one of the reasons that I love this church, these, this gathering, and these people here is because there's a value that's been perpetuated, and I see our young pastor doing the same thing. When he gets up here and he says, ask not what the church can do for you, but rather ask what you can do for the church. Amen? I mean, even the heat, John Kennedy said that, what, back in 1962, right? The Berlin Wall. When, he, when that concept, even the heathen understand the importance of not having a self, self-absorbed perspective on life. An entitlement when it comes to things, especially the church. That's the last place that we should have a self-absorbed or entitled mentality. Erwin McManus, a pastor out of Los Angeles, says, we somehow think that the church is here for us. They got good coffee there. (laughs) I just, by the way, I got a bone to pick with coffee people. I don't drink coffee. I tried once back in college when I worked the night shift to get through college, you know. I'm going to drink coffee because that's what everybody does to stay up in the night shift. I tried, but then I was putting so much cream and sugar in it, it is like missing the point. So I just stuck to my Mountain Dew. <sighs> that little bunny trail, I don't know where it came from. But we're here to serve the church. And that is the calling out when we maybe want to start fussing about the church all the time or whatever, we come in with this mindset of like, hey, you know, there's opportunity over here. We, we look around sometimes, go, well, this could happen. Well, we could do this. We do that. Okay, go do it. Go do it. Go talk to the elders about, hey, I see a need over here. Can I help out? Rather than sit back and like, oh, I wonder why I ain't getting that done. Next time Joey gets on his high horse and tries to get you active and involved in what's going on because he's always saying, we're a participating church, right? Um, Don't do kind of what, you know, is kind of easy to do where you kind of sit back and go, oh, listen to him. He's a young guy. He just wants to kind of maybe build a little bit of his own kingdom and, you know, and then he just wants me to help him out to make him look good. No. No. Not at all. What Joey is saying is, look, we're all called. We've all been called out. And you know what? 
I'm the chief of those who've been called out and I'm up here working my hind end off to advance the kingdom of God and I want you to join me. And that's what Joey's saying. He's not trying to build up his own little kingdom here. He's trying to get us involved in serving the church at Mechanicsburg. We also see in this statement, it's a demonstration of self-denial. We see this in the fasting. And this here could be its own sermon, fasting. But it begs to make a point. When we, with a right attitude, deny our flesh for the purpose of pleasing God and demonstrating our intent to be in his will, things will happen that won't occur without some form of self-denial. God asks us in participating in his church to let go of our natural fleshly desires. I still remember so clearly, 1999, I'm sitting at this, uh, under a tree in Thika, Kenya, just having my little quiet time that morning. And there on the, uh, there was like the, the, the high school there. there, they had the, the track, they had some fields and they had some trees out there. I was under there. And I remember just very clearly the Lord saying, Mark, will you fast for your children? Sure. And so we worked out an agreement, so to speak, that he had put on me that between that time and up until a few years ago when he released me from that contract, you might say, where I would fast once a month for my children. That's just... And over the years here at the church, serving in the church, leaders would call out a fast. Um, Every time made a major decision in life, fast over that. Going through particular struggles, fasting. Guys, I'm not up here saying I'm a guru of fasting. I'm not. I, I, I'm not. I'm, I have no paragon of virtue up here, people. Just plain old Mark Miller, right? But what I've discovered more than anything in my experience with fasting is, is that, you know, it doesn't necessarily change circumstances. Fasting is not about twisting God's arm to get the thing, life to go the way you want it to go. That's not what fasting is about. What I've discovered is is that through fasting, through this denial of myself, that my faith and my confidence to go through situations in life is okay. It's just simply okay. And you know, again, I'm going to pick on Joey because, you know, week after week, he's up here. He's railing against this whole spirit of getting comfortable right? Don't you dare get comfortable on me now, you know, and he's out like, he's like daring us to get comfortable on him. We might see him come over and smack us upside the head, metaphorically speaking. He wouldn't do that, literally. But no, he as a leader, he's constantly encouraging us to get out to a place where we might chafe in our flesh. And I tell you what, I can pray any day. (laughs) I can fellowship any day. I can worship any day. I could worship all day long. But you say, hey, Miller, 
Oh, fast tomorrow. Really? Really? I don't like fasting because you know what? You just feel it. You feel it when you're fasting. But I think therein lies the purpose and how God calls us out to fast at times for him to deposit something. So guess what happens now in the, last, in the last part of this line? The Holy Spirit said. Guess what happens when you have the right attitude towards God? Guess what happens when you deny your flesh and seek him? The Holy Spirit is going to show up and lead you into what he wants you to do. Do you know that long before you even had the problem that's driving you crazy... God has already set forth a solution and a response and an answer for you. Do you know that? You know, your circumstances, your situation has not taken God by surprise. In fact, he's already going through it for you and he's on the other side of it saying, come here. And what? Seeking the Lord and worshiping unto the Lord, making him the focus rather than myself, denying the flesh, and I'm not talking about getting religious here, people. Please understand me. This is not about getting religious and somehow being kind of haughty and puffed up. Not at all. It's about a simple obedience to a New Testament principle in which when we exercise it, that releases something in the spiritual realm. Can you imagine what our lives would be like if we fasted one day every time we complained about something? Right? We're whining and moaning to someone. Oh, you know, just like, you know, naughty words cost you a quarter or a dollar or something. You know, what if we had that? Like, oh, I have a bad attitude. Oh, I got to fast tomorrow. I don't know, I'm just saying. Are you... I used to do counseling, right? People come in and tell me all their problems. And I used to think, you know, kind of talking through and, you know, just kind of fix them. Then I realized some people just like to come to you and talk about their problems. And they walk away and then they will come back a week later and talk about them problems again. And I started saying things like, well, how much have you fasted over this? Huh? I thought you were a good counselor. Someone recommended you. I'm going to recommend you to nobody. Now, I'm, no one ever said that. I'm just making that up. But the point is, right? The point's well made. I don't know what you have going on in life today. Because you know what? There's so many good things to worry about. So many things to be stressed about. So many things to be fearful about. Ha! <laughs> Boy, anyone over 50 years old, sit to them. Boy, I don't know about today. I don't know. Man, that's not. You know, at least we used to be in this. And it used to be this. And it used to be, you know, there's that tendency within us to get kind of real negative. There may be some truth to it, but the spirit behind it is not healthy. God has the Holy Spirit said, right? We have to understand that this generation has an answer for today's culture. This generation of leaders has an answer, a spiritual answer for today's culture. Because 
God is in control. And then finally, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. This is the last part of the verse. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And this leads right into verse 3. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The calling out. Years ago, when my wife and I, Phyllis, were dating, we were courting back in them days. No, we actually weren't. We were not that old. (laughs) We were dating. She was in Iowa. I was in Indiana. And we had been, for about two years or so, kind of dating apart from each other, right? We would meet up with each other from time to time. And um, we got to that stage in the relationship where it's like, okay, what are we going to do with this, right? Are we just going to, you just always going to stay in Iowa and me in Indiana? We were both farm kids, so I was on the farm in northern Indiana. She was in the farm in Iowa, and it's like, you know, after a while, it's like, okay, we got to do something here. So we started talking about that marriage word. You know, it kind of came up from time to time, and then it get dropped. <laughs> and But it was there, right? What are we going to do with this relationship? Because I don't know. You know, I don't want to do this for the next 20 years while you're in Iowa and I'm in Indiana. Although I think some marriages could benefit from that. But anyhow, that's another discussion, Miller. Just stop. So at some point, um, she made it good and clear to me. And I don't know if it was in a phone conversation. That was back in the days of like... I think, wasn't it? Do we have rotary dials back then? Yeah. Or letters. I'm not sure if it was on a telephone call or in a letter. At one point, she just said, you know, Miller, I mean, this is my paraphrase. You know, Miller, um, if you just are planning on kind of living happily ever after in the community you grew up in where you know everybody and everything's familiar and you've got your place on the farm with your dad and you're just going to stay there and, and live happily ever after and then I get to be your wife and we get to have a bunch of kids and we're on the farm and na, 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 na. she goes, I'm not interested in it. Oh, okay. What was neat about that though is that I had also been feeling this stirring, like, I don't know, you know. I don't know where or what, or what God doing what, where or what. All I knew is that I had been feeling this calling out. She brought it up and confirmed it. I'm like, okay, we're both being called out. What I didn't know is that back in the early 80s, well, this is like mid-80s by now, Back in the mid-80s, what I didn't know is that God wanted to take these two little farm kids and stick them in the middle of Cincinnati, in the middle of a suburban area for the next 11 years so that God could use that time to take what little gifts and talents and desires that they had for the church and and run with it, right? 
I didn't know that after 11 years that God had a place up in central Ohio out in the middle of the cornfields with a little place called Rosedale Bible College where I was supposed to serve as dean of students for seven years. I didn't know that. I didn't know that out in the corner of Shy and Allison there was going to be this church built back in the early 90s and that I was going to end up serving there for 15 years on, on staff. I didn't know that. All I knew is that God was calling out, sending forth. Here we see an important aspect of church life is sending people out from the church. Sending people out from the church is a normal, important aspect of church life. As painful as it can be, sending out talented, committed people, loved ones. And I just wonder sometimes, what if instead of posting attendance numbers and offering numbers in the church bulletin, we posted out people we've sent out this week? Right? And I'm not coming up with a new proposal for it. I work here and, you know, we always put in attendance numbers and offering numbers. But that is not even in the equation in this church setting here. It's not even important. In our North American priorities, we value large numbers in attendance and church budgets. The larger the better, right? Maybe not. Maybe not. It might be a good thing. It may not be a good thing. The question is, is what is the Spirit of God doing? The question is, are the people responding with what God is asking them to do? You know what? We're not all going to be called off to be sent as missionaries to other countries. Thank goodness. Ask my wife sometime just what three weeks of Sakuma Wiki rice, beans, and cabbage did for my gastrointestinal system. Just saying. I couldn't wait for a pizza. <laughs> We're not all called overseas. I just, I have so much respect for people like Rich and Jewel who have gone overseas and they thrived off that. I'm like, wow, bless you guys. Not all of us are even called from the farms in Iowa and Indiana to the center of Cincinnati. That's 200 miles away. We're kind of called. We were sent out. It's just 200 miles. We're not even called to be sent off like we did a number of years ago to the church plant that we kind of mothered over in Urbana. We're not even that. But we all are sent out every day, right? Every day, you and I are being sent out, whether it's 10,000 miles, whether it's 200 miles, whether it's 10 miles, or whether it's down the road to where we work. We are called to be sent out. And you know, it's interesting. Joey is all over this. I appreciate that about him. You know, he's the Walmart preacher, man. You know, he's, he's the Walmart man. And there are times I felt a little guilty, like, I'm, I'm at Walmart now. God, who do you want me to talk to? No one wants to talk to me at Walmart. 
But, you know, God has called me to Union County. And going into people's homes where there's some significant health issues going on. And people are... And, and you know what I do? Not every time I go into a connection with someone. But this is what I like to do. As I get out of my car, I like to just stop and pause and say, Okay, God, how do you want to use me in this meeting, in this connection? Sometimes it's just a regular... It, there are times, though, where something is said and I'm like, Oh, respond to it. We are all sent out. And we see that here in this church. This church in Antioch had that mentality and I believe all of these things we've talked about this morning are prescriptive. Not everything in the book of Acts is prescriptive. Dear Lord, no, we're not going to sit here and tarry until fire falls down from heaven that looks like you know little flames of fire over our heads. We're just not going to do that. Okay? I'm not saying a church might not be called to do that. I'm just simply saying, I'm not going to do that this morning. Oh, it's in the book of Acts, so we've got to emulate that. No. But in these, this, this turning of this new thing that God's doing now and how he's going about building his church, God, um, I think these things are very prescriptive for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the church at Antioch. I thank you for how you used all of your disciples, all your apostles. And Father, I just pray that as we now turn our direction to be hearing what, how you used the Apostle Paul as he went out on his first missionary journey and, and on... And all the stories, all the things, I just pray that the inspiration, the example, the model would go before us. Thank you for men of old, church fathers, that we are to pay homage to, to respect, to give reverence to, not worship, but to revere them in a godly way. Thank you for all their faithfulness. Thank you for the leaders, the elders at the church in Antioch and all of their diversity, how you bound them together and then how they sent out from them for the advancement of the kingdom. Bless them. Bless them. Just thank you for that blessing of, of what they did, Lord. Just thank you for your word. I just pray a blessing upon each one of us now as we are sent out from here. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. Go in peace.